You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Attention, if you're an eastern whitetail hunter with dreams of hunting elk, antelope, or mule deer out west, but are overwhelmed with the knowledge gap, look no further than Outdoor Class. Outdoor Class features professionally produced courses taught by the world's leading outdoor experts and can be consumed on your phone, computer, or TV. Visit OutdoorClass.com and start the process of making your hunting dreams come true. Use discount code EMPIRE20 at checkout for 20% off. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Pennsylvania Woodsman Podcast. I'm your host, Mitchell Shirk, and I hope that you stayed warm over this rather frigid weekend we just had, uh, finally warming back up a little bit, but, um, you know, stuff that's been going on in my life, uh, you, you know, the wintertime's always an interesting time for me, but um, I had uh, had an interesting week. I, I said I was, I was a bachelor last week, <clears throat> uh, sort of. Uh, it was just my, my two-year-old and I. My wife was away with our infant visiting some family and uh it was definitely a different dynamic running uh running him around back and forth between my mom's place and uh, my mother-in-law who who both of them uh, god bless them took uh, took care of him all week long while i was at work uh running back and forth obviously gets a little bit carried away i'm sure many of you uh can relate to that lingo but i uh, had uh had an interesting conversation with my with my mom and i'll share with you guys because um, it's been something that's been on my mind. So I, I grew up and went to public school. Always been uh, very pro public school. I liked the public school I went to. And I think from a general sense, uh, public school is, is a positive thing. And, you know, my mom has been a school teacher. She's retired now, but she was a school teacher for 35 years um, teaching elementary school and knows so much about the education system, is very... Um, very knowledgeable and uh, in in tune with with that whole process and um, all those factors lead me to, to to say the things I said about public school but I can't lie that um, here recently as I'm a new dad seeing my sons grow up like I know he's only two my oldest is only two gonna be three but I'm literally not that far away from sending him to school and school activities and sports and this and that it's right around the corner and i'm starting to think about with the society that we live in is public school the right option 
because, you know, I've had conversations with um, people who have raised children and, you know, reflect, but people that I respect and, you know, reflect back and say, you know, um, at the time it seemed like I was, uh, was checking a box, you know, I, I pay property taxes and school taxes, you know, it makes sense to send my kids to public school, but maybe that wasn't the right investment. Maybe I should have been investing more in my kids and the values that I instill that maybe aren't being taught in the schools or, or questioning the values that they have. And it, it really like hit home for me because, you know, I, I, I want to bring my children up in a way that is well-rounded, um, have, have good values and um, I, I don't want to shelter my kids from the reality that is life. But at the same time, there's some stuff that if I could avoid them experiencing at certain points in their young life when they're very, very impressionable, <clears throat> I, I kind of want to do that. I'm sure a lot of parents can relate. So I had this conversation with my mom. It was funny because she asked me at one point when it was just she and I, she said, do you enjoy being a parent? And like that was the first time anybody ever asked me that question, and I'm I'm sitting down like, oh my heavens, I have no idea how to answer that question, and like right away my reflex was yes, yes, and 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 I started thinking about like that, and and the the answer is yes, but it really made me think because it's it's definitely stressful and trying, and it's definitely not all glitter and glamour. As uh, as any parent well knows, it's not. It's it's a learning curve, and uh, that led us into this conversation of the whole school thing and myself investing. And my mom said to me when I was uh, when I s- expressed all this concern, her not that I'm you know considering this. You know, it all started because we wanted to look into sending our kids to preschool, and that's not cheap. And we you know investing in our kids. That that's where I'm getting at. I'm, I'm thinking about how do I want to invest in my kids and. She made a great point. She said, well, first of all, she said, well, do you think that your your dad and I didn't invest in you in uh, sending you to public school? I'm like, well, no, not at all. I, I think it was a, a good investment. She said to me, she said, Mitchell, my experience has taught me that the most positive impact you can have in a family is a family that has a mother and a father present in their life that is not divorced and both parents are involved and purposeful in that kid's upbringing through school. They're involved in school functions and supportive throughout that that thought. And went on to say a couple more details, but you know that like right there that hit home. I was like, be, you know, she's like, be deliberate in what you do and involved in your kids. Don't look at school as sending them to school and being done and, and checking that off the box for eight hours out of the day. Um, let them know your support throughout. And even though there's craziness in the world and, and stuff like that going on, that, that message and those values that you share are, are seen through actions and not just words and your kids. And while hearing that makes so much sense, it, it was kind of a, a light bulb moment for me. And, and she made a comment that definitely is going to stick with me. She said, you know, the, I, I guess, you know, it's pretty common for, for kids that they'll have like book club nights or, or book fairs um, in, in school. And she said, uh, you know, most of the time parents won't include their kids. Are they, those kids have enough books or they don't need to be part of that. And she said, you know, it's not necessarily going and buying books. It's the fact that you're going to a social event, that getting a soft pretzel and talking with people and, you know, 
you know, catching up on, on stuff or, or networking, like that has more weight than you will put it. In. Her response to me was on a night where you have a book club, Mitchell, that's not a night to schedule a podcast. That's a night to go do something with your son. And I was like, you know, I'm really glad I had this conversation because it was, it was so relatable. And I was, I was so glad to somebody, but I, I'd be curious if, as you guys are listening to me ramble and, uh, and talk about this, you know, I'm sure many of you have had similar instances in your life and question where your investment lies with your children and how you parent, like, what are your thoughts on it? Like, I'd be curious because I, uh, I want to be the, the best parent that I can and, uh, and, and bring my, my children up, um, in a, in a Christian upbringing. And Lord knows I'm, I'm a, I'm a sinner, but Lord, Lord knows I'm trying and uh, I, I want to do the best I can for, for my kids. And I'd love to hear what your perspective is on this whole matter because we are definitely in a, a crazy, crazy state of life. So I guess that's where I'm at right now in my mind this past week is investments and investing in my children's time. And uh, speaking of investing our time, um, this week's episode is with somebody who spends a, a great deal investing their time into off-season preparation and has some some camera strategies and, and hunting strategies that I feel allow him to be successful in the big woods of Pennsylvania. And I was really looking forward to having this conversation with this guy, somebody that I've wanted to, to talk with for a while. I've had on my, my list of, of notes for a guest for a long time, and I was so glad we could make it happen. And that's Bo Martonic from the East Meets West Hunt podcast. He, uh, I've been really intrigued listening to him when he talks about his strategy hunting big woods and how he uses cameras for multiple years, um, tries to get good detailed analysis and, and make detailed decisions before he dives in and spends a lot of time hunting that. And it's, it's calculated in, in the process. And I've, I've really liked that. So we, we dive into trail camera strategies. We talk a little bit about, um, how in season and off season scouting relate to that placement of cameras, the, 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 you know, the, the soaking of cameras from, you know, an entire calendar year and uh, then we get into a little bit of bow hunting strategy we talk generally speaking of mature bucks versus targeting specific bucks and how that might look slightly different case in case to case Um, we just have some general conversation about hunting pennsylvania hunting big woods mature deer and and we kind of we kind of round it off with uh you know something that was near and dear to me and it's doing what you love to do and doing it in a way that has fun you know Bo talks about his strategy and this is what I like to do but just because that's what I like to do doesn't mean that this is what Mitchell has to do in order to be successful and you know you know Bo lives in a place where he's got big woods right out his back door and that that's his his daily life when it comes to whitetails and uh, I you know want to be better hunt you know, a better hunter in those low density mountain buck areas and i've stressed that so much on my episodes just because it's 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 new it's a challenge there's a nostalgia of the places that i hunt so i i like that however my timing and scheduling um and my priorities and trying to line those might not allow me to invest a ton of time into the the hunt there year to year so the I, I like his mentality and approach of, you know, sitting back and collecting information. And then when, uh, when you feel that the time is right and you have that information collected in that area to, to try to target something. And that's kind of what I've, uh, based some of my areas that I hunt upstate 
on, and I wanted to dive into it more with Bo, and I, I thought he was the perfect uh, perfect person to do it, and uh, yeah, Bo was just a great guy. I really appreciate him coming on and chatting with us, and uh, I hope you guys like this conversation. You know, this is a time of year when uh, scouting is is a big deal. You know, the 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 canvas is is a bare as bare as possible when it comes to vegetation and just seeing things in their raw state and how deer might be navigating even though it's a winter time there's going to be some slight differences from you know february march late winter as there would be compared to october november december deer season but at least with that open canvas you're you're still able to tell a story of what may have happened a few months back based on that sign and uh, it's, it's, a, it's a great way to just put another piece of the puzzle. And like I said, both somebody who I, I feel does a really good job of doing that and, and stresses about on his show. If you haven't listened to, to East Meets West Hunt podcast by now, um, I really encourage you to, uh, to do so. That's a, that's a great show, especially for, for folks in this neck of the woods. But, uh, yeah, let's, uh, let, let's uh, wrap this up here. Um, hope you guys are having a good week, staying safe. Uh, staying warm and uh, hey let's uh, let's get to this episode with Bo Martonic. All right we are rolling and today I got an awesome guest with me. I've got a fellow Pennsylvania hunter, fellow podcaster, uh, somebody I've been really looking forward to having this conversation with so Bo Martonic, uh, thanks for hopping on. Yeah, thanks for having me on Mitchell. I know we were uh, trying to nail this down a while ago and then just kind of lost track of it. And I'm glad that we were able to make this work. I'm, I'm excited for it. I think when I had reached out to you, it was like right around the time where you made your, your big transition from, 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 uh, going full time. And I think you had a big, pretty big, uh, big plate at that point in your life and i was like man i don't <laughs> i don't need to uh, put any more on his plate at that point moment in time. We'll, we'll connect at some point so yeah no i appreciate that that yeah that time was uh it was it was stressful because i was like trying to you know stressful leaving my job to go with something that's not you know secure from the standpoint of like you know it all comes down on me whether i'm you know getting paid or not and and then i was i it, quit my job and then I had my scouting camp and then like in a week and a half I was leaving for a bear hunt in Montana and it was just like there was a lot going on at that point so yeah I appreciate that <laughs> there was certainly a lot going on I mean every time you'd post something or talk about it on your show like you could see like it was there was a long list you're coming up on just about a year that you know, one year anniversary for that right yeah that was in uh middle of April uh, or towards the end of April is when I left uh my full-time <laughs> job and th- and that'll be I guess well the podcast would be five years July first, but I had started like getting the stuff and and formed my business and stuff in April five years ago. So it's it's crazy how much how fast time flies that you know half a decade's already gone by of me doing this. So it's pretty crazy. Time definitely flies, that's for sure. So walk me through what your emotions and mind has been going through this past year leading up to your one year anniversary of making this transition to, to full time <laughs> oh man it's it's i'd say scattered is like the best way of putting it like i've just it's been really stressful from the standpoint of like trying to get your mind to shift and like realize like okay I just you got you got a plan in place just trust trust it it's just i've been you know, an employee of somebody for so long and I'm just used to, you know, you get a paycheck every two weeks and with now, like, you know, money will come in at one point and then it doesn't. It's just like, it's a different uh, mindset and I'm definitely getting better with 
being able to to learn to how to deal with it but it's been incredible with having the i guess the freedom and and opportunities to be able to you know if i want to go hunt on a tuesday because the weather's right i can do that and i'll just work on saturday you know it's just like it it's it makes it really nice that i don't have a a set schedule now i will say i work more now than than i did before um than i did when i was working at my other job just trying to keep up with you know the stuff that people you know they don't see is like all the bookkeeping and all the proposals and going through and everything that's like the the business uh just all the other business stuff that goes along with it takes up a lot and then editing and trying to do that you know in the fall it's hard because like during the fall people are you know listening to podcasts the most like i can see it from my Mm -hmm. numbers or watching videos and stuff but to be out in the woods trying to create the content and then turn around and try to edit it during the season, it makes for a lot of uh, low sleep nights. I'll put it that way. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> definitely got to be a grind. It. Definitely got to yeah. be a grind. And I mean, that's a good thing though. You'd say that you're working more because for, for one, it's a labor of love. So you you yeah. know, I would I would hope that you'd want to be working more and pushing this to the next level. So hats off to you for that. And number two, like it's it's definitely a mindset change and, and a, a discipline a self-discipline that you, you need to be able to take because like I know for my own self, like I, I've, I've always worked uh, my primary job, you know, for a company. And I, I like that stability. I, I, I like that structure to be honest with you. I mean, the, the thought of going out on my own right now on a lot of other things would be, you know, if I was going to do something in the world of agronomy um, full time, you know, it'd be a little bit intimidating doing it by myself. Not that I couldn't, but it's just that mental preparation doing so. Um, I think you're 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 definitely somebody that would uh, would take off with that. So um, yeah, real and real exciting. Also, and also, like I mean, it was a long time in the planning. Like I I think I had it written down. It was like 2015 was before I even started the podcast. I just knew that I wanted to figure out a way of working for myself. And honestly, when I started the podcast, I didn't know that that was going to be it. But like I I had. Uh, I had that my mindset there and like I worked on getting rid of any debt that I had like I just started like that process years before so you know when I went to quit my job other than my house payment I didn't have any debt I didn't have vehicle payments I didn't all my college loans were paid off like I just I focused on that really heavily and just kind of lived frugally just to get to that point and that was so I yeah I did a lot of prep work to to try to make it as less risky as possible for when it when it did happen <laughs> yeah and now that you're almost a year into it and you're, you're starting to see that transition in life you're, you're probably going to get to that phase where uh people who see it from the surface whether that's social media or listen to the podcast or whatever will get into that mindset when you're hunting in the fall and say that would be nice and that's when you can say it is nice but you have no idea what it took to get here <laughs> yeah yeah no i i just learned like just yeah just Someone wants to say that that must be nice. I mean, yeah, it is, but it's yeah, definitely been a, a process to to get there and a lot of other sacrifice to, to get to that point, I guess is what, how I'll put it. <laughs> now, good for you. That's exciting, man. So looked like you had a, a pretty fun season between elk season, whitetail season here. I mean, what was uh, w- when you look back on this past hunting season, what uh, what are some of the highlights for you um, from beginning to end that, that stand out that you enjoyed the most and maybe stuff you took away going into off season? Yeah, so I, I'll say first, though, like, the, the elk hunt I went in Montana was, I 
I I went I spring bear hunted in the area and I found really good elk sign and ran into some guys found some sheds and and saw some bulls that were growing antlers already and I'm like man like there's this is a really good area and once I got the tag I was like I want to put in as much time as I possibly can and this was also like a test for me as a business to figure out how to how to make it run and still release episodes and still have make sure it didn't fall apart and if I could go away for three months or not three months excuse me three weeks mm-hmm. and uh, and do it so I, I planned for three weeks to be in Montana and hunt elk and that's what I did which so it was 21 days of hunting and it was that was a grind like mm-hmm. that took some mental uh, it was a mental strain of sleeping in a tent backpacked in for that long um you know come out like every six or seven days to get more food at the truck and then hike back in but it was i learned more about elk and elk hunting in that period than i did in the previous four years of doing it like it was it was so it was phenomenal and it didn't it didn't work out as far as me filling a tag i ended up i missed a bull um on day three my buddy killed one. I called one in for him on day two, so that was awesome. And mm-hmm. then on, or maybe it was day one, but and then, uh, I on day three there, they were just living in such thick stuff. And I learned this was a, a big learning lesson for me is practicing shooting in brush and understanding like not shooting like into brush, but understanding how your arrow is going to fly when you have branches that are going over. You know, like the target looks clear, mm-hmm. but you got a bunch of branches in some of those thick pines. You know, I, I hit a branch and missed the bull like cleanly by far. And then the the next one that I had, it was like day 13. I was chasing this big herd bull. I mean, the the film's going to come out here uh, probably this summer. And it's just the biggest bull I've ever seen in my life at 18 yards. And I ended up hitting some branches again. And I skipped it. And you'd see on video, it stuck him in the back strap. Mm. And uh, so... And I was like, man, that's, you know, that's not good. And, and, uh, we tracked him for a while. Next day went in and then relocated him and he never slowed down. He was just rutting, chasing cows, ended up trying to hunt him for another five days before I had to leave. And, uh, he never even, it was like, you know, you know, like a, um, a briar bush sticking you in the arm. Like it didn't, he didn't even notice anything of it. So. I mean, that was positive that he was okay out of it, but it was, it really stung. And that was like that hunt. I learned so much, uh, just, yeah, I just learned so much about elk in that time. And it was just like a really bittersweet end to come home without, without that big bowl and a cool, and, you know, a couple coolers full of meat. So that, that kind of sucked, but it was also a very memorable, uh, part. And then I say the other thing is Pennsylvania, uh, that was a grind of a, a season. I, I got in. I was hunting out of state uh, at the beginning of October, so I missed opening day for the first time in my life. Mm. And I didn't get home until about October 12th, and I started going in the woods, and I just felt like I was way behind. Like, I just felt lost. Normally, I'm, you know, out scouting and figuring out what the food sources are and all these things, and it just wasn't. I was struggling, and I was struggling to even find uh, deer that I wanted to hunt, and I was targeting a specific buck and he was just nowhere to be found mm-hmm. i try i mean and then i started going off the historical knowledge of what he would do in the past and hunting and i i went four or five days without seeing a single deer and it was just like and that's not really a t- i mean it's not really 
uh, atypical, I guess. Like there, it's low deer density, so and sometimes mm-hmm. when you're hunting in that thick stuff, where where uh, some of those bigger deer live, and it's just you don't see many deer. And but then it got to a point where I had one day left to hunt, and I was in there, and it was about noon. I'm sitting in the tree after sitting all day, and it was 70 some degrees, and I'm like. I need to make a switch. And I just like, it hit me. I'm like, I need to do something different. And I went to uh, a crick bottom spot where I had, I hadn't even been in there that year. Um, besides hanging a stand it was the only spot that there's, uh, that I had a pre hung stand mm. and it's the only area that me and my dad also share hunting because him and I, it's funny because, um, we we're so into hunting, but we always hunt different areas. And that's just like, that's just how we've been. But this was an area, it was like a crossover spot, we call it. You know, we call it blurring lines where like a couple areas connect. And, and uh, so we've both hunted this spot in the past. And, and I went in and uh, got in the tree and was just kind of reflecting on everything. And it was hot out and uh, did a grunt, grunting sequence like about a little bit before dark. And I heard some crashing coming up the, the creek bottom. And this buck came just running full sprint in. And he stopped on his own at 12 yards, and I ended up putting a perfect shot on him, and and uh, expired only 30 yards in the woods, and and that was just like a really awesome end to the the season. And used my inreach and and texted my dad, and my cousin Mason, and and my brother happened to be in town because he lives in Montana, and he came in and they helped me get the deer out, and we went to camp, and it was just that was a that was a really cool part of the season, so. Yeah, those are some of the highlights, I would say. Oh, real good deal. I, I find that funny what you said about your, your dad. They'll listen to, to some of your shows over the years. It kind of seems like uh, you know, he's he's giving you a hard time and like uh, hold might not necessarily hold some stuff back for me. I just I just think the dynamic <laughs> when you guys talk is so funny, like the, the secrets and stuff, yet you're still on each other's team in a, in a sense. I, I just find that funny. Yeah, no, it is. It's, it's, it's like a – it's comical. My whole family's like that. Like my entire family, all my uncles, my cousins were all like very big into hunting. We all hunt different areas and we're all, you know, we're all rooting for each other, but we're all kind of hunting our own hunt, so to speak. And, and, and so, yeah, we don't, we don't share a whole lot of me and my dad do. We share information Mm -hmm. and, and spots like as far as like what we're doing but we don't typically on each other's spots if, if that makes sense it does <laughs> so i I'm, I'm you said you were targeting a specific buck and then you end up shifting gears and, and killing a different buck um so when you go into a season now at this point in your hunting career in, in pennsylvania big woods do you uh, how do you go about deciding how what you want your season to look like or what expectations would you have? I mean, do you target specific deer as much as you possibly can at this point? Are you strictly looking for mature deer or like, what, what are some of those things? And, and that's going to kind of help me gauge some of the questions I have for you that revolve around preparing for a season in the off season leading in. Yeah, no, that's a good question. So what I like to do is it helps me, it helps keep me focused if I'm targeting a specific deer but I don't have that as like my end all be all. Mm-hmm. So like my goal, what I try to do is usually I'll try to find multiple deer that are in different areas. And depending on which area I'm hunting, I'm targeting, and I'm trying to figure out that one deer off historical knowledge. Uh, when I say that, I mean trail camera data or sightings that I've had in the past, look at those dates and try to hunt 
based off of that, but I'll also shoot other deer that would so happen to mm-hmm. come through there. But I, my personal goal at this point is a four and a half year old or older deer is what I have is doesn't, I don't really care about, uh, the antler size or anything. It's just, that's kind of where my, my goals are currently. So, and as you know, being in Pennsylvania, you know, you could have a, a six year old deer that will never be over 115 inches in some of these spots. And then other times you can get one that's 170 inches. Like it's, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty crazy. Now, typically the one that I'm like targeting in area is going to have big antlers. Like, sure. that's what, you know, everybody likes that. So like, that's what I'm, that's what I like to focus on. But typically I, I find a deer that I want to hunt. I try to hunt him and then take other opportunities if they present themselves. Yeah, I, I find too, It's it seems like places I've hunted that hold a mature buck, it, it's usually not the only mature buck in the area. And it seems like it, there's a lot of, um, a lot of features that would, that would en- enable that to happen. Usually it's, it's pressure related from my experience, but, um, you know, four and a half years and older, I was just on the phone with uh, a guy today who used to live in Pennsylvania and he's probably one of the few people I've ever met that, uh, actually live the dream that so many talk about, about um, picking your family up and moving to Iowa and becoming an Iowa resident and hunting whitetails out there. But he, I was I was joking around with him and he made the comment like, he goes, even though I hunt in Iowa now, he said, I know what mature deer do. He said, and even if it's Iowa or Pennsylvania, wherever, he goes, when a deer gets to four, five plus years old, he goes, it's just a different animal. He goes, and it's just a different challenge. So, you know, I I, I can uh, definitely echo the challenge in that. I, I'm curious too. Bef- before I ask this next question, do you ever send um, send teeth in for the the was it called centum and annual eye uh, uh, slicing yeah. that? I I sent my buck in this year and it, it really surprised me. It came back as a five and a half year old buck and it, it was actually older than I expected. I was thinking he was probably a four year old and I was I was curious if you've done that and if if when you've sent results like that, do you see does it match what you expect or is it is it are you off sometimes or or what are your thoughts there um it it depends if i have a history in the area so i didn't send in this deer uh this past year that i shot which i believe he was four maybe five years old had a little bit of history but not not a ton with him but his his body wasn't you know just gigantic that i would think he's a six-year-old you know Mm -hmm. but he he was he was a good you know pennsylvania eight point and but yeah I've, i've i've sent in um the last few years like the one i shot last or 2021 he was five and the one in 2020 he came back at eight wow and um and i've had i had one come back at nine and a half and uh and we we all my dad sent in his buck from a few few years ago that i came back at seven and a half Mm. which actually we thought that one was eight or nine based on the just years of trail camera uh, data and stuff on them. But um, yeah, I, I feel, I, I do also feel like I've talked to a few other people that say they've came to some of the big woods areas and they had no history and they've hunted and they've shot a buck and they're like, Oh, you know, this is a nice three year old or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they send the teeth out and they're like, wow, this came back at six. Like it was, uh, it was kind of crazy to, to hear that and, and, and see it. But I, I love doing that. I think it's pretty cool to, to get them aged and, see that i do and i think it always tests like my information of what i actually think i know about deer i mean you, you look at deer from from pictures and body characteristics and size and proportion and this and that and one thing i do i do too i mean i i've, I've heard 
you know, people that I hunt with that I agree, you know, a, a mature deer, skeletally mature is going to, it's going to have a thicker skull plate a lot of the time than, than a younger deer. And I, I don't know how accurate that is. And what I, I can't say I've seen a lot of buck that have been seven, eight, nine years old in Pennsylvania really got to compare a skull a skull plate or a jawbone from those deer compared to a four and five year old, but like a, a deer that I would, 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 you know, see as a five year old, I would expect to be a little bit you know, thicker than a, than a three year old, so to speak. So it, it, it's just like, when I look at the observations of my deer and stuff, I was, I was curious, that's completely unrelated topic, but it was fresh in my mind. I wanted your thoughts on that. Yeah, no, that's, that makes total sense. And, and the head size definitely, I think that definitely makes sense. Like I know that I noticed the foreheads themselves are always bigger on older deer. They just seem like they have. But one thing I have noticed that, so the deer that I was targeting this year, he was he ended up getting killed in rifle season, and he scored 167 inches. And I think he was a I think he was a seven year old. I don't know, and I don't know the guy that shot him, so I, I I'll probably never know that that answer. But if you were to if if I were to show you a video of him, um, he would be you'd be like, man, no, that's a giant four-year-old. Mm-hmm. But he never would get mass on his antlers. So, like, and even his body wasn't, it depends. In the rut, he, he, you know, he looked like a giant body. But, like, at other times of the year, he just didn't have the biggest of bodies and didn't ha- he always had just kind of thin antlers, just a giant frame. And uh, and that, that was always kind of surprising. Even one of the sheds that I had off him was just, like, it was thin. It almost looked like a three-year-old like mass on him, which is kind of crazy. And I think it's so deceiving when you look at a trail camera picture, even if you look at a deer on the hoof and they're by themselves, because like, um, <laughs> like deer, deer, I think are similarities that there's, there's, they're a little bit like people, like they're not all the same in the way they're built. They got similarities, but like, you know, the buck I killed this year, he, he was long. I mean, I, I, I'm exaggerating, but it it felt like he was seven feet long. He he was just a really long deer. And, you know, I've, we've, we've been a part of some other ones that were shorter, but were just, you know, built like a Brahma bull. And when you, when you weigh them out, they were the same, but that, that build is, I, I think it'd just be deceiving. So like when I'm, I'm saying that thinking, when you look at a trail camera picture of a buck by itself, I've done that where I'll go, man, he's probably like a three, maybe a four year old deer. And then you, you look at a, a trail camera picture of another buck in, in like a series and you're like, oh, that, that's, that's probably a, a two or three of them. And then you compare them side by side, like whoa something's going on here he's a lot bigger when when i can compare him to that deer i happened this year when i killed my buck the, the a buck stepped out in this this food plot that i was hunting and he was i'm just gonna take a guess and i was thinking he was like a two maybe a three-year-old buck and then when my buck stepped out and i could compare body sizes and, and geometries of their and shape and stuff i was like holy cow there's no doubt in my mind that's a mature deer i'm, I'm gonna shoot this deer um yeah because it can and, just and be trilogy. deceiving Show cameras are deceiving even for antler size. Like I always underestimate how big they are based off of trail cameras. Mm-hmm. Buck I shot in 2021, I was, I mean, I had both of his sheds from the year before and I was like, man, he didn't, he didn't grow anything and, and he didn't get any bigger. And, um, and I was like, oh yeah, he's probably, I don't know, low one thirties. And I shot him and which that's a great deer. Don't get me wrong, mm-hmm. but I, I, I shot him. And, um, even then, even then when I walked up, I'm like, wow, he looks, you know, he looks bigger, but I still didn't put him, you know, anything over 140 inches. And then once we taped him out at 147, I was like, we got to do that again and did up three times. And I'm like, wow, like it's just, it was deceiving from the trail cameras, especially nighttime trail camera photos, make them look smaller in mm-hmm. my opinion. It's tough to, and 
I guess it depends on the angle of your camera. If you have them up a little higher, angled down, they look smaller. So it it all depends. It doesn't. I mean, sometimes the just certain things can be like my buck, my big one I killed in 2020. That was the exact same thing. I had pictures of him the year before, and I'm like, I'm gonna guess he's like 140 inches. And then the year I killed him, he he was definitely bigger and blew up, but his rack was so so tight that um, it was really deceiving. And I still was like, he's probably in the 160s. And then when I ended up getting fortunate enough to kill him and we put a tape on him he was he was like right at 170 i'm like we need to retape that there's no way that he's that <laughs> big and you know it's again when you look at the rack it's deceiving but you put a tape on a beam and when a beam's like 25 26 inches long that adds up quick so it's just amazing how you know even when you're looking at them their antlers it's deceiving when you're sizing it and the same thing goes for for body um i'm, I'm getting off giant. It, it, <laughs> a little bit of luck was involved i mean some hard work was involved with luck and i was i was blessed nevertheless but um you know i i'm 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 getting off on a, a, a tangent here. It's so easy to do, but we were uh, we were circling around um, talking about trail camera pictures, and one of the things that I um, have really kind of uh, taken from you and some of the advice you've given or the strategy you've talked about in trail cameras in big woods is how you know with it being big woods, low deer densities that sometimes the time invested to try to learn a place and kill a mature buck especially with a bow might be a little bit longer than your typical mixed ag um you know compartmentalized habitat and uh you know talking about soaking trail cameras for a year and i think you've even talked about having some places where you've run cameras and in an area that you scouted and liked maybe in the off season or maybe you walked during hunting season but didn't really put uh, much time in them for a year or two and uh, i i'd kind of like to to dive into that a little bit with you yeah no i I look at anytime i go to a new area i look at it in a three-year window like a three-year strategy of figuring it out now you can always get lucky or figure it out earlier where you shoot a buck on year one like that's definitely possible but i feel like to really know an area it takes at least three years and so what i'll do is every year in the spring um so i have like a list areas that i want to scout and i want to get out to and i'll have like two or three areas that i've hunted for years and like those are my base ones i kind of know those spots and then i try to have you know three or four new areas to go walk Mm-hmm. and I'll just go check them out, and if I find that they're good, maybe one or two of them are, are really nice, and I'll start running cameras there, and I'll even drop cameras in the spring, and I'll just let them go all year, and and then not even go back there until the following spring or winter and go grab those cameras. Now, you do run a risk with leaving cameras out that long of weeds growing up and you know, or false triggers and it killing your batteries like i've or bears run into all of that but yeah, yogi bears bad I, for that i yeah I, I definitely feel like though by doing that it, it's better than me not ever getting back there because like you only have a limited amount of time during hunting season and it's like if i don't put these cameras out now sometimes i'll pro- i might not get back and i lose a year of data that i could gather from it um i mean i have a camera right now i she forgot about it until here last week but it's in new york <laughs> and uh i i put it out last december so over a year ago <laughs> and uh, i'm like i hope i don't even know if it's still on the tree but um i i do that a lot i'll just drop cameras in places and then i'll you know gather that intel and then once i find something that 
is interesting, then then that makes me want to like spend more time there and start figuring it out. How I do that, like in year one, is I look at like especially stuff that has topography. So say you have um, you know a mountain or a hill that's kind of going up and you got 800 feet elevation gain or whatever it might be. I like to run cameras, you know, at least one up towards the top, maybe one on a bench down a little bit lower, uh, and at a minimum one in the creek bottom and 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 usually on big scrapes i i target community scrapes for most of my cameras and the reason why i do the different elevation levels is because you kind of figure out how the deer are using that land and that terrain and that'll also be dependent on how the food is for that year so if you have acorns up top those deer might be hanging out up there all year but if you have no acorns and down low there's black cherries and beech nuts dropping those deer might be bedding and living down lower and uh that just and then also like in the in the bottoms, they always travel through those bottoms, going either from one ridge to the other, or running up and down it during the rut. So like I always find that that's like a very bulletproof spot to throw up cameras. And then as I as I go further and say like, all right, the one at the mid level on the hill, I had this big deer and he was coming back. I'm thinking maybe he's bedding out at this point. The next year I might take few more cameras and start clustering them around that spot um and still keeping some on the fringes in different areas if things change and then i have more stuff that i learn about maybe i'm hunting at that second year and then as you get in the third year you're really starting to hone in like all right there's a clear cut this buck's living in i'm going to put cameras on the whole perimeter of it maybe some on mm-hmm. the internal and start to really hone down those areas and that's that's kind of what i mean about like the a three-year strategy of it because i just don't unless i'm going on like an out-of-state hunt where there's not really any there's no other option other than to try to figure it out that first year but i like to i like to kind of slow play my way into it i like that and i i like that strategy because um i'm a little bit of a different environment you know being here in southeast pennsylvania um it's not it's more of a a nostalgia or a desire to hunt up than it is a necessity because I have plenty of of deer hunting options down here but my just level of enjoyment of going to camp with the camaraderie and the the, the history that I have in my camp with family like that has grown to such an appeal that I, I want to hunt more there um but um you, you know my, my goal right now at, at some point in in the near future i'd say in the next five years is i, I really want to kill a mature buck with the bow um up at camp you know i haven't killed one with the bow in that sense and i've really liked that idea of you know when i've when i've done um rifle hunting or or off-season scouting or turkey hunting you know positioning cameras and 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 doing that trying to take information little by little that way when i when i feel that i am ready to dive into this i've got enough information to hopefully be deadly with the limited time i'm going to have between vacations and, and scheduling and and stuff like that in a in a given fall um Three-year strategy. Walk me through when you're looking at cameras. You know, I, I've got a, a handful of cameras out, and I think dissecting camera data from trail camera into big woods can be a little bit overwhelming, at least for me, just because so much of the terrain features and bedding locations that 
um, I typically look for, it might not be quite as defined or it's just a bigger scale. And, uh, you know, when you go through a year's worth of pictures on certain cameras, that's a lot of pictures to go through. And a lot of time I find myself zipping through pictures real quick and, oh, there's a good buck. I write that information down. But I, I feel like I'm, I often go through a card and I wonder, did I, did I miss something and go through it too fast? So walk me through a little bit of that, like the time you're taking and investing in that, uh, that data assessment. Yeah, that's uh, it takes a long time. You're you're spot on with data assessment and you know analyzing that data for me takes a long time. And currently, I still have uh, over here on my desk a pile of SD cards that I need to dump on my computer. Yet, like I've looked at them uh, on my phone, like plugging it in, going through them real quick, and you know I got some highlights there. But I always like to put it on the computer, make sure I'm not missing things, especially if I have it on video mode, because you learn so much from you know, you might have a blank screen like I just had on a camera recently and like eight seconds into the video, the big deer that I was hunting then walked out in front of it. And if I was going through it quickly, I could have just deleted that and never even knew he was there. Mm. And so that was that's something I've learned. But, yeah, it takes a long time. And then so but it's important for me to keep everything organized and cataloged so I have everything broken down by year. And then I have it into hunt areas, like the bigger areas. And then I have specific spot folders. And then I label by dates that I, from the SD card pulls. And I dump everything in there. And then I keep a separate spreadsheet that, now I don't log all the data because it's just, it's too much to, mm -hmm. to be able to go through. But like if I find a couple bucks that I'm trying to figure out, I'll, I'll start keeping, um, in like a, a Google Sheets of, all of the data for that buck. So I'll put in, you know, I have like the buck ID. So I have like what I would call him or how I would identify him. I'd have the date when I had the trail camera picture. I put some weather data in there, you know, temperature, wind, wind speed. Um, and then like a note section, like what he was doing, direction of travel, you know, that kind of stuff, time. And as you go through that, now, now you start having a bunch of data on him and, you start diving into, okay, is there any like characteristics that I can pull from, from this? Like, all right, does it seem like he's moving on a, a westerly wind more so, mm -hmm. or is he, you know, was that associated with a cold front? You know, that's, that's always a, a big one as far as the movement. And, and typically I only log the data too. I should, I should note of daylight and, or right around daylight. Mm -hmm. And I'll, I'll put the other stuff in there, but I have it where I could filter into just the daylight stuff because that's when it's going to be the most, you know, the best chance of being able to really have an opportunity at them. Now, the nighttime stuff's important as far as, like, you know, you're not really close to them, at least at that point of the, the, the year to where he's probably betting. But I use that data, and I start going through it and figuring it. And as you get a couple years on a, a specific buck, you start learning some trends, like, this, I keep referring back to this deer I was hunting this year. I knew that that second to third, well, I knew right around Halloween he'd come in and he'd go after this one doe group. He'd always, you know, I had an encounter with him where I was at full draw and, and didn't get a shot opportunity in 2020. And then uh, he, he just hit that first doe group would come in and, and he would, he'd always be there. And then I also, then he wouldn't show back up on my cameras until like, November 14th through the 18th, like the last week of the season. Now I wasn't going to be around to, to hunt at that point. So that was kind of null for this time of the year, but 
anyways, I learned that. And then, and, and when I just pulled, so I had three years of data on him and he, every year he does the same thing. He just around that time. Now it wasn't like the exact same date every time or anything, but like you go sit in this spot for a week straight, there's a good chance as long as, you know, he doesn't catch your or catch your wind or anything that you're going to have an opportunity at him. And that's what I look for those trends or like the other way of uh, how I look at it. And a lot of this is, this is more just writing notes down. It's not on a specific buck, but it might be a specific scrape and mm. when that gets hot around uh, a certain dates. That's, that's really important is like there, there'll be some scrapes that I know like, okay, October 13th or the 16th, like that spot, if there's a cold front around there, that scrape is hot in the, in the daylight. And I'll note that. And I'll put some other stuff in there. Like if there was like, if it was around some sort of a food source like acorns or if it was a good black cherry crop that year is, is that maybe have an effect on why it was hot? You know, those are all, there's a lot of stuff there, but now, you know, I just talked about all of this data that goes into it, but then you also have to unpack it in a way where you don't have paralysis by analysis. And I do struggle with that sometimes oh, with yeah. digging in this much data of like, all right, you know, oh, but, well, you know, should I go in here? This doesn't line up or whatever. And sometimes you do just got to hunt and just, you know, and kind of go with your gut and see what, how you're feeling with it. Um, but I, I do think having data just helps you learn a lot. As long as you can figure out how to actually make a decision based off that data rather than paralysis by analysis. Well, yeah. And I think I'm hearing like two different thoughts come to my mind. Number one, you're, you're talking about targeting specific bucks in some cases and gaining information and trends to target specific bucks. But then there's also the case in point where you're, you're targeting areas and there's probably areas that you can focus in on that might produce a mature buck that you're not necessarily uh, targeting. You, know, you talked about crick bottoms and maybe that, that uh, crick bottom is going to be hot in the, the first or second week of November or scrapes hot from the 13th yeah. to the 15th of October. And I, I like that. I'm curious when you, you know, you, I know you've said you hunt a, a pretty good size area and I know the, the general forest makeup in a lot of Northern Pennsylvania, the places that I hunt are mostly like a beech birch maple with mixed in cherry. There's not a ton of oaks there, there there's some places, but I mean, that's a pretty consistent makeup. And uh, like I know in, in 20, I think it was 2021, you know, we had a really, really good beach crop year and it seemed like game was a plentiful. It seemed like you couldn't, you know, let a, let a bush turn without chasing a bear out of it because it was beach nuts. And, you know, this year the, the beach nut crop was, was kind of. To, to say the least piss poor um so yeah. then w- when you're when i'm thinking about white tails and how things do on an annual basis um do you see in some cases that it is boom bust in certain areas because of that rotating mass crop food sources or do you get to a point where you know because of the because of areas that have chop offs or certain food sources that are more consistent do you see more consistency in certain locations year to year and and you know along yeah. those lines i guess yeah so i i will say areas that have oak trees are very big boomer bust in my opinion mm-hmm. like that that i think that makes or breaks a lot now it doesn't mean that the deer are going to completely leave the county but they might be shifting to a different part of the hill like i was i gave an example earlier with like oaks on the top and say there was some cherries and beach down low and maybe that crop you know was better but like this year we had nothing 
in my spot, spots that I was at. We had cherries early, but they they were usually scooped up the first week of the season. And then there was no beech nuts. There was no acorns. It was tough. And at that point, those deer were moving like, I mean, there were some deer that I, I know were going a couple miles away and they were feeding in some, and some newer logging cuts and kind of living around that. Now, that's why areas that have a lot of different logging cuts that seems to be more consistent because they have browse right there. They have a whole bunch of just a mix for us to be able to, to feed on, even if there's not some sort of mass. And so those areas, I tend to find more consistencies than areas that, that are really mass focused. That's a good, that's a good point. Talk a little bit about scale, I guess, when you're trying to look at, cause I find myself too, like I, I have a, a couple select areas that if I, if I make a couple circles, it'd be a couple hundred acres that you know, I'm, I'm focusing in on for a couple of different reasons. But on a year like this, where it's a little bit tougher, um, do you find that sometimes zooming out more than a couple hundred acres in those locations and going to multiple thousand acres, you'll still see some of those same deer in those patterns move into a, a different cut or just a they're going to move that far for food sources Is that pretty common for you yeah yeah that 100 percent is and i know like so the deer i shot this year was actually funny my uncle was targeting that deer like almost four miles away wow and had pictures of them all through october then now the rut that can take deer on their own tolls no matter what food's looking like you know they, mm-hmm. they're just going to go try to find does but they will travel a lot and and yeah, and it sometimes it does take like, you know, when you're looking at, you can get caught up in the micro, you know, of a, a of a particular area. And sometimes when you have this historical data, it can kind of mess with your mind too. Of like, you you get so set in what you have already known, and sometimes when things aren't happening, you need to kind of take a step back and look at like, okay, just simplify it. Like where where they where could they be at, or why would they be somewhere else? Oh, maybe they. You know, I saw a logging truck coming out of there. They're cutting over somewhere in that section, and there's probably fresh tops there. Maybe they're feeding on those at night. And, you know, as soon as the, the, the skitters are shut down, they're coming in and feeding on that. That might be a shift. Oh, I saw three other new tree stands that popped up. That's hunting pressure that got added. They might be moving around. So sometimes it takes bouncing to different spots. But there's also, this is why I'll have, you know, three or four completely different areas that I can go to like for example like when I said I shot my deer last year that was a good 15-20 mile drive of completely different spot and I'll have those too because sometimes some areas will just be hot and other areas aren't and when you're in the middle of the season and see you only have so many days to be able to hunt it's hard to to figure it out in that amount of time sometimes it's best just to pick up and go and and pull and now that's the that's the million dollar question on when you should do that and uh and i i don't have a great answer for when you should pick up and go other than if things just really aren't looking good and you're you're looking at your your scenario and your gut's telling you you need to go then you need to go yeah my experience is i'm usually a day late and a dollar short and but uh, <laughs> yeah that's just the way it goes one, one thing i found too like um there, there's a couple places that i've i've focused in on for with cameras and scouting and such and they're, they're typically pretty far back in and uh, i i typically find myself not pulling those cameras very often when you get to a point where you are ready to come up with a game plan 
for targeting an area that's back in. Do, do you find yourself in situations throughout the season where you position cameras that are easier access that relate to that area just for, for keeping tabs on, or, or is that not something that always works out in some of the places you get to hunt? It can work out. Now, I, I do like to have cameras that are closer to roads or easier access if I have an hour to be able to get out and go check something or throw a hunt at it just because I have the time. You know, I will do that. Now, I don't, I won't say that if you're targeting a specific deer that that typically always works out, but right. you can kind of get a general idea of how the area is, you know, heating up or feeling by doing that. And I, I think and that's, you know, within those areas that, that I have that I'll hunt, I always have areas that are close to roads that I can hunt in a quick scenario because if you're always like targeting far back in spots which can be great for getting away from pressure and people mm -hmm. and everything but sometimes it's not realistic to be able to hunt all those spots and you can also find some really good overlook spots close to roads um i've i've definitely learned that i mean actually really the buck i shot this past year he wasn't very far off a road no, i was just down over a really steep hill and it was like everyone parks at the end of the road and I just pulled off along the side and went went down over and that that's tend to work you know work out for me because it was like I don't know 10 minute walk it wasn't wasn't anything crazy to be able to get in there so and that's not even you know walking fast yeah it's amazing like there's there's I can think of a drive that we do in rifle season with our group of guys, and it's it's a short, quick drive close to the road. But just the way the terrain sets up and the the design of the cut, um, there, there's a spot that is consistently uh, pushed a buck out, and it's gone traditionally the same direction every time. And um, doing that has opened my eyes in how deer are probably watching people from that spot because it's very close to an access road and, and to a gate where people park commonly and it blows my mind. So it's a, it's a spot that, um, people may, may or may not be overlooking. Um, I don't think they're necessarily overlooking it cause it's holding deer and it's holding, it has deer sign, but I think they're probably overlooking as well as I am how to hunt it when you're hunting solo like what's the what's the nav what's the way to navigate to this spot to hunt it with a bow like I'm, I'm trying to figure out in this next uh card is um how far can i push the envelope before i'm pushing too far if this is an area where deer are consistently betting at this certain time of year and that's really tricky for me i find myself like looking at good spots trying to figure out in my head how are the thermals going to hit you know how's the sun hitting this section of the side hill it's open i know where there's 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 a cut in the bottom versus the top and, and all those things together and i feel like i have it nailed down but go to one of the spots and i feel like am i bumping deer out because i'm 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 not putting the final pieces of the puzzle together from uh just where they're betting or, or, or pushing that envelope too close if that makes sense yeah and and yeah i think all of us kind of go through that but one thing that i've tried to do is is i just i'll just push in and and risk it and it's like if i bump deer and i it's better if you can see him if you bump them that makes you feel like at least you know at that point you're not just you know you go in and you don't see anything but you know maybe something bumped 200 yards away and you didn't you didn't know it but in my, in my opinion like just testing the waters and going in and trying it 
is will give you more information even if you screw it up than if you didn't it'll either confirm that you were right because the deer aren't going to leave forever right they you know they might be gone for a couple days or unless unless you're doing it multiple times but it at least gives you confirmation that that you were either correct on their betting or you're not and sometimes if you can slip in there and and then you know then it could work out for you so there's that's the way i've looked at it is just like I'm I'm a little more aggressive on that front and willing to screw things up and then just move on to the next plan. And and I and when you know you're talking about you know taking the stuff and putting it into like I have like I have a written hunt plan before every season where it's like I'll have the the areas and the spots broken down and all the notes as far as the wind and what I'm thinking as far as that because that helps me when you get start getting into the season. And you start, because as soon as you start getting the season and it's not going well, your mind starts to go negative and you start like, oh, I don't know where to go. Where You have a hundred spots to go to, but you, you have zero in your mind. You know, like you don't mm-hmm. know what to do where when you have this written down, it helps, it helps make decisions for you based off of that. Like, okay, I know based off of this wind direction and the way the thermals, uh, you know, pull through there from when I was in there scouting and tested it. Like, okay, this, this is a good spot to be able to hunt. Let me go try it. And, and that's kind of how I help deal with the, the problems in your own mind. That makes sense. And you talked earlier, I want to back up a little bit. You talked earlier about, you know, putting cameras and staggering and clustering cameras and locations and stuff. Um, Give me a little bit more detail on what you like when you're looking in the new year. When you, when, do you like to focus cameras um, any way, shape, and form from bedding sources to feeding sources to putting one on a bench versus one on a point or looking for connecting features to try to collect? Like, it, it, Do you have a, um, a method to your madness when it comes to, to camera placement to collect those? Because my, my, my question to follow that up would be then, how do you um, take into account this time of year right now when it's shed season and it's the time in off season we like to scout, um, backtracking camera data and those camera locations to, to help make decisions for the following fall? Yeah, so I when it, when it comes down to specific spots, I look for things that have multiple things that are working in your favor so whether that's you know um kind of an edge where maybe you have like hemlocks that are meeting some open woods or meeting a clear cut and then it kind of the train also bottlenecks down there like i try to find pinches of some sort or edges that i think you're going to travel like especially the first time that i'm doing like Mm -hmm. first time going into an area like i'm trying to find the best chance of a deer passing through there and not not really strategy based as far as you know they're gonna bed here or not at the beginning i just want to get photos and you know confirm that the deer are there and then that's when it kind of goes to the next step of like all right by looking i had some cameras here you know maybe he was bedding somewhere in this area where are they likely to be at and now i'm trying to find scrapes that might be closer to some of this this bedding stuff and a lot of time the edges like you're finding those edges spots like on around clear cuts it Mm -hmm. might be real close to their bedding anyways so you you might be you know you might be inadvertently you know killing two birds with one stone and and being able to figure that out but i'll start at that point then i'll start you know moving and trying to find depending on the time of year that i'll have cameras out um or let me backtrack there 
depending on when I plan on hunting the most is kind of if I'm having cameras soak is how I'm going to set them up. So like a lot of my cameras are set up on pre-rut and rut-based spots. Mm. Now, if it, there's a spot where I'm able to keep up with it and move cameras throughout the year, that's maybe one of my focal areas. At the beginning, I'm going to try to focus around the bedding stuff with my cameras. So sure. like anywhere where I found buck bedding sign in the past, anything, that's where I'm going to try to put my cameras at and get that data. And then as the season moves on, you know, the cameras might be moved closer to doe bedding and scrapes that are near there and the funnels and the pinch points and the train features. And then that's where I'm going to to move it to. And then when it comes back to the late season, I'm trying to find the available cover and getting cameras close to that. Yeah, that makes, that makes perfect sense. I find myself too, like that, you know, you go through, um, up the process of a few years in a spot. Like I've already gone through and done some scouting, placed cameras. And then I, I have to really, focus and make sure it's a point that I'm not always going the the same route of travel in to pull cameras and stuff and looking at it from a different avenue and trying to put points together it's so easy to get hung up on for me it is from from uh, how I access places in a scouting sense um, and, and making sure that I can get the whole picture in the location yeah oh man that's that, that hits home because like I know that when I'll leave like Say I leave the tracking feature, which I do most of the time. I'll keep the tracking feature on Spartan Forge whenever I go in to any of my spots, and I'll start seeing a trend. I'm like, I'm doing the same thing, and it's like, and I'll look at it, and after the season, it's like, okay, there's a, a whole area that I completely missed. If I could have accessed it from this way, or even if I bump a deer, at least I, you know, knew what was there, and you see things so differently. And actually, I had uh, Tony Peterson. Um, from Meat Eater on, on my podcast a few months back, and he talked about that's why he loves rabbit hunting because you just you're going through the woods differently than you would if you're going for deer hunting, and you're going through different spots and areas, and you're able to find those little nooks and crannies, crannies that that you might not have found if you're doing your normal walk mm-hmm. into a spot. So that's a that's a that's a very good point, and I think I think all of us can get caught in that trap of doing the same thing all the time, and now. If I was like, if I had a pretty good idea that a deer was living in a particular area, then I might want to do the same thing every time and let them pattern me doing that. And then when I go to hunt them, do something different, you know, as far as access goes. Yeah, I think it goes down to the amount of time and history you have in a location. I mean, I've hunted uh, properties that I have such good history and knowledge of what the deer do on a consistent basis. I'm I'm not going to push the envelope at a certain time or or push a a stand location just because it it doesn't make sense to with the amount of information that I have there. But, you know, I I think uh, you talked about Tony and, and rabbit hunting. I've had that same thought process but with bear hunting in Pennsylvania, because I feel like I get so hung up that like I got to be out big game hunting and doing this. But I, I like to grouse hunt. I like to rabbit hunt and do things like that. And like one of the best ways for me to prepare for bear season is go out with a walk with a shotgun if for turkey hunting or, or grouse hunting and, and put boot leather down and see things from a different perspective. And it's, it'd be no different um, seeing it that angle uh, with, with, with whitetails. Yeah, no, yeah, you're 100% right. And I, I think that, yeah, we can get in, in our own just rhythms and things that, that can be a detriment to, to our scouting and be able to figure it out. And that's why I love the spring so much because, like, if I find an area that I really want to dissect, like I might, 
say for example, I find this big clear cut. I might start by walking the whole edge of it, but I start marking spots where I see trails that are coming out or just things that look good that go in. Maybe I can see an opening back in there ways. And then I'll start dissecting it and just walking all of it Mm -hmm. going, just walking trails and just trying to cover as much as I can. And that's when I learned so much. And like when it comes to hunting season, all of us, you know, we get it in our head that we're so worried about bumping deer that sometimes we don't push the envelope and getting to learn a spot or like, especially if it's your first time in there during the season, because you're so worried about bumping deer and where like the off season, you don't worry about any of that. So it's just like, you, you can really cover that ground and find all those places. Now, the biggest thing is like being able to remember what you found and applying that later. And that's why, like, I just, I take detailed notes. I put it right in my app. I have everything in there. I take the journal entries. I put them in, and then I'll go back and uh, and review that for the season so I can remember. Because, like, I have a goal every spring to walk at least 200 miles um, in scouting. You forget a lot in that if you don't have it written down. At least I do. <laughs> oh, I would. I would. My brain's not that big. Um, <laughs> no, mine neither. The. Uh... I think it was interesting. Do you typically run, like, when you're scouting or, or going on walks in season stuff, do you run uh, the tracking feature on your app a lot? Because one thing that kind of clicked, you said you kind of see, like, I was doing a pattern. Do you find yourself doing as doing that more, like, reviewing what you do versus, like, just solely focusing on, on the deer stuff? Because I never thought about that before. Yeah, no, I definitely look at that. And and, and that's I, – I run that. The, the track to be able to see that because i'm now like if i'm going to and from a stand or a place to hunt like i i try to do the same thing usually on that mm-hmm, right. but if i'm still hunting my way in or i'm just scouting in the season i try to do different routes to to be able to do that so i'll look and be like all right i already kind of know what was going on there i was just in there three days ago <laughs> so maybe i want to go at a, a, a different route and go check it so that's yeah i definitely look at that during the season Good deal. Good deal. What, um, anything new and exciting or, or places that are exciting you or the things you want to dissect this off season or, or, or are you, you know, still on the track of a, a, a buck you've been watching that you're trying to break apart, uh, more pieces of the puzzle for this upcoming season? So actually, I mean, that, that deer I, that I was hunting with him being killed, um, that kind of puts me to clean the slate a little bit. Now I have another area that I have a lot of history with. And there's a buck that I targeted him a little bit this year, but up until then I've never targeted him. And he's like an eight or nine year old deer. He's old. And I got a lot more information on him, but there was also a four year old that was in there that was extremely daylight active at the end of October. And he has some real good potential. And so I'm going to really focus on trying to figure him out and doing that as far as in, in Pennsylvania. And then, um, so I got a couple areas like that that I'm going to spend some time in and focus and kind of pull off the area that I've put most of my time in the last few years because that, that deer I was hunting mm-hmm. um, with him getting killed. And there really wasn't – there was some other nice ones in there, but nothing that was, like, really had me excited. Now, would I shoot some of them? Yeah. But, like, it just I, – I like trying to, like, just kind of have that nostalgia of chasing, like, you know, something – just phenomenal and and so i'm gonna try some of those areas and then also i'm really excited about i'm gonna go down this spring to west virginia i've, I've hunted it the last couple of years and i've really liked hunting some of that cold country down there and i feel like i'm starting to learn it 
Now a lot of a lot of the same things apply, but a lot of things don't because it's it's so different. Where in the coal country, they cut the whole tops of the mountain off and then they reclaim them, and it's just thick, nasty bushes and brush, and and the hills are really big and super steep, and they don't have a lot of benches. It's just straight up, straight down mm. from the bottom to the top, except for some like old roads, like logging roads or or mining roads that are cut into the side of the mountain that might only be eight to 10 yards wide. And, but there's not really any benches there. And I've learned that these bucks like to run the points more than anything. And then they do some of the other places. So I've learned a lot about that area and, uh, I'm, I'm really going to put some time in down there and trying to, trying to finally capitalize on, on a deer down there. So good deal. You were talking about the the buck you were chasing the past few years, and he was killed in rifle season this year. Does, is there any specific learning lessons from that deer that you take away over the past few years? Uh, that he liked to rut during bear season, <laughs> and 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 between then and and rifle season, which is kind of wild. Like, if the camera poll that I just went into last weekend. First time I was in that area since I knew he was dead, and I hadn't mm-hmm. been in there since November. He was all over my cameras more than ever before. But it was November twelfth was the biggest thing. So like I learned that like that, and and this is something that has helped me. This buck has really like just kind of put a stamp on it. That I believe that the biggest oldest deer that second in the third week in November can be a really good time to kill them. Like if if you don't have them really honed down at the end of October when they start going to find the first does, that period, they just roam and they get in zombie mode and make mm-hmm. mistakes and cover ground. So, like, I learned from this deer and and some other deer from the past that that week, although it's the slowest as far as action goes for rutting activity, that you have the chance of some of the biggest deer, at least in my areas, uh, for for that. And And also I learned that I spent I spent a lot of time trying to figure out this deer early season, and I never could figure out where he lived at in the beginning of October. I just couldn't, and I think I I don't know if I say I wasted time, but I should have probably knew what my strengths were with him during the rut during that period and focused on him then, and just went out and tried to hunt areas that were more. You know, that had more food source, that had oaks, that had, you know, or had acorns or had mass that I could hunt in that early season versus just trying to figure them out just because in an area that was all brown. And uh, that that was a learning lesson that I would have from that deer specifically. So well, I think um, it's easy to get ourselves in a headlock, too, because like you want to close the chapter on that. Like that's a personal goal, a personal challenge you've put in. It's hard to leave that. It's hard to say I'm not going to pursue this deer, even though, like you said, you, you did have those strengths leading into to that deer with threat. I think it's amazing. Um, m- some of the best mature buck encounters I've ever had have been during bear season, have been doing, been, you know, still hunting and bear hunting or bear drives where we'll go through thick cover and get onto, onto a bench and, you know, there'll be a hot doe in there with multiple buck. I mean, I've had some crazy experiences with good bucks in those, those, those times of year. Uh, it's funny because you, you get with groups of guys that rifle hunt those same locations and, oh, we're, we're going to do really well in rifle season this year. And they never do because they're, they're, they're not approaching those spots, right? And I, I've been in those shoes just the same, but that is a unique time of the year. 
Yeah, it is. And, and it was funny is uh, I had a video of that buck the day before rifle season opened in daylight, just before dark running, chasing a doe grunting the whole way in front of my camera on video. It's awesome to see it. He got killed then, uh, well, a day and a half later, mm-hmm. uh, over a mile away. And, but he was heading in that direction. I was like, man, that, that doe killed you, man. Like that, you didn't make any mistakes up until then, but he was full on rutting coming into rifle season. And that just, that killed him. And, uh, I, I've debated, I, I want to like put together all the, the video footage I have of them and all this stuff. Cause I mean, this year gave me the run around 2020. I should have had him killed multiple times and I just, I just screwed it up. And then 2021, I killed on the first day. So I didn't, uh, I never really hunted them then, but 2020, I should have killed that deer. And, and there's so much learning lessons, but I also, you know, when you're hunting on ground where other people can hunt, it's like, I I worry about sharing that stuff. And, and I also, there's people that follow me that hunt some of the same areas. So that's why I don't share a whole lot of trail camera, um, like actual videos and photos unless the deer's dead. And, but there's so much to be learned from it. So I was thinking about putting together like a whole, uh, video kind of breaking down the last three years on, on chasing this deer and some of the, you know, I won't use the exact maps, but like similar type areas and what he was doing and where he kind of lived these times a year. And, and it was just, there's a lot of really cool stuff to like that we talked about here, even with him running late that, that I think people could learn from and see. And he's just a magnificent creature. Yeah. I don't blame you on being leery about what you share. I mean, I, I've, I try to share as much as possible because I wanted it to be a, a learning experience and helpful yeah. to people, but it, you're going to run that case in point where where somebody might take things a little too far you you, you know wouldn't expect and i i don't blame you because you're uh, you're hunting spots you work your tail off for and you don't want to want it to be uh let the cat out of the bag so to speak i guess yeah i've i've come out to my truck before and had people sitting there really uh wait yeah 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 i've i've come across this multiple times and so i yeah and it's i know it comes with the territory like when you you put yourself on a public platform like it's you're you're gonna deal with some of that and i get it but again and the reason all reason why i'd share it because i think there's so much for people to learn from from this experience and what i screwed up on and how i could have done things differently and and i think that you know most of the time i i think for me that trumps like my own personal um you know, sometimes I think I overthink maybe people aren't, you know, following me around as much or they won't see it or whatever. But I've had some obvious situations where people are uh, standing out at. Well, do at you have like a giant and, East meets West sticker on the back of your truck for everybody I to see? I used to. I don't anymore. <laughs> but the problem is my truck is so recognizable because I have a rooftop tent on it and like everything is just like people know my truck when you see it. Like it's very. That it was just a dumb move. My dad has a whole separate vehicle that he. I was gonna say, what about a separate beater truck for the mountain? <laughs> That's what I need. I know, and uh, believe me, I've I've ran, ran that through my mind multiple times on on getting something different to to run around in because it's I'm, basically I'm just putting a a big flag on it. And yeah. Not that I'm always like in the best spots, but people usually know that that I'm putting my time in and I'm probably going after a a decent sized deer. So that's, <laughs> doesn't help. <laughs> exactly. Um, kind of wrapping things up here with you, Bo, but one thing that was going through my mind, we were talking about deer bouncing around and, you know, hunters get, uh, you know, 
they don't want to bump deer. I, I get that too. You want to sneak into areas and everything else. Do you think from your experience in some of the the habitat types and terrain types you get, do you think that we put too much emphasis as hunters at, uh, on don't bump deer? Like, like is that – do we put too much weight in that throughout the hunting season? I mean, I, I, I know – I know that you don't want it to do it in a sense of a consistency. I mean, if you're accessing a spot wrong, letting your wind blow into a spot wrong on a consistent basis, yeah, that's going to mess an area up. But from a from a learning standpoint and an access standpoint, like I, I still think a deer beds in a location because it has an advantage, and if he gets away, he wins, and he's going to use that area again. Like it's just so hard to gauge it, that uh, that level or degree of that. So I mean, what, what's your take on that because uh, as you said earlier your your buck you were chasing was you know, shot the next day or two days later a mile and a half away it's um i, yeah. I think we run into that a lot yeah no i i i'm 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 a big believer in like that i'd rather push the envelope and and screw it up but learn something from it than never learn anything at all and not even be in the game and because sometimes i feel like you can have these assumptions and you're not even in the game but if you're not pushing it and you're just sitting there, just, you know, sitting way off because you're worried about it, you're never in the game. Mm-hmm. But now I now where I do think is important is access to when you're going to hunt in a spot. Like I do pay a lot of I do put a lot of emphasis on not trying to blow deer out getting into an area. Sure, sure. Um, but what I'll do in, in situations where there's a potential for that is I'll go in super early at that point. I mean, I don't. I, I run full on headlamp, not worried about that. If it's dark out, those deer don't seem to be bothered by it. They just completely don't completely like, agree with that. You can walk right by them. It don't. I use a white light. Like it just doesn't matter. It, they don't. They don't. They're not worried about it. Versus gray light or just like within 45 minutes of light. Like they're a little bit more weary at that point than if you go in an hour and a half early. Now I don't do that all year. Um, or what I'll do like during the rut is I'll walk in at daylight and kind of hunt my way in and do that and get up in the tree versus, you know, coming in early. And it's just, it really depends, but I I do pay attention to access. I don't, I don't put as much emphasis on worrying about bumping deer in in a lot of situations. Cause I do believe, like you said, if they're betting in a location, especially a big deer, like an, or older deer, like they, they found that area because they know they can escape it. Now, if you're blowing them out two, three, four, five times, you're probably not going to blow them out again because it mm. won't be there. But if you're doing it a couple times, I don't see the I don't see the hurt in that. And I think, and and I'm saying this really confidently right now, but it's also something that I think no matter what we all kind of struggle with. And oh. I think I struggle with it more when I know a deer well, <laughs> because. I I start to get I start tiptoeing around things when I am hunting a deer that a particular deer and I'm thinking he's bed in this spot like I struggle with that more than I do in an area where I don't have as much history on a specific deer in a location mm-hmm. and that's where I'm trying to get better if, with if I'm like when I was doing the kind of a self analysis that was one of those things was like I need to you know hunt all areas similar um, now if you're hunting. Now I say there'd be an exception is like if you're hunting private that you have a smaller chunk and you're worried about them going on the neighbor's yeah, property. Yeah, different. maybe I would be a little bit more weary than if I'm hunting a, a giant chunk of public or a giant chunk of private where they can, you know, bounce around the different spots and and it's not the end of the world. 
And that's that's the answer in my mind. I, I think I uh, uh, hinder myself so often because I'm used to hunting different private land pieces. You know, from you know from you know a couple hundred acres down to you know a, a dozen. You know, the, the the smallest piece I have is like two acres, and you know uh, it's capitalizing at the right the right time in those situations being confined to that border is such a big deal on a private land piece if you're going to make it successful and i think when i uh in my mind then translate to to the big woods i'm so concerned about bumping them out of the next county and in all reality uh, i think um the the scale in which i have my mindset of hunting that deer sometimes needs to be bigger because if i do bump them it could be um a, a few ridges over and i'm i'm back in the game and i I, you know, it's free range. It's a large chunk of public land. I mean, some of these chunks of public land that I'm hunting are 30, 40, 50,000 acres or more. So, um, yeah. So, um, yep. you, you kind of answered, I was, I was, I was kind of curious, you know, what, uh, what's the, the evolution of Bo Martonic and, and his, and his hunting goals and, and aspirations where, uh, where's, where's things you want to improve upon or, or goals you have in the next five to 10 years. Um, whether that's, you know, Western hunting or hunting as a, a big woods whitetail hunter in Pennsylvania. Huh? That's a good question. So for me, I want to get better at, I want to get better specifically if I'm looking at like Pennsylvania, just big woods type areas. I, I want to get more consistent in different seasons. Like I want to get more mm. rather like I'd say most of the majority of the, the deer that I kill are during the rut. And I want to get, you know, I've, I've killed a few in early October, but it's like, I want to get better at being consistent, getting on deer at that time when there's not, you know, ag fields or anything like being able to figure out their, their area. And that's super tough. Like I've really struggled with, with doing that consistently. Now there'll be some deer that I, I feel like I can figure out, but most are not. And, and that's, that's definitely a gap in my, in my game. And I, I want to get better of being well-rounded throughout all the seasons at that front. And then also, um, one of my other goals, like as, as far as hunting in general is like, I just want to visit some really cool places and hunt in some wild places. And I'm starting, well, I'm continuing my thing. I've loved, I went to Alaska in 2020 and it was like my, the best trip that I'd loved that. And this year I'm going back to hunt moose, which has been my number one bucket list, mm. um, hunt. So I'm going up there, um, in September and going back in, uh, no, late October, early November, actually during our whitetail season, but, uh, it for, for sick of blacktail deer on Kodiak Island wow. and, um, a DIY hunt up there. And I just, I love going to those wild places. Like I just, it's, it's so fun to me to do that. And I also realize that like, I'm never going to be the best moose hunter. I'm never going to be probably the best elk hunter i'm not going to be you know those are just hunts i like to do and i love learning it over time like whitetails i'm like i just want to continually just like refine my game where those ones are more of like I, the experience and wanting to to go to those places and that's 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 the coolest thing for me because eight years ago i didn't think any of that stuff was possible for a regular guy to be able to do that. I thought you had to have a whole bunch of money and you had to do things and through research and, 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 and finding out that you can find those at, at reasonable costs and you can, you know, make those things happen with some planning. And, and that's been really fun for me to, to learn. So I just want to see more places. 
Yeah, I, I call that the difference between uh, being an elk hunter and going elk hunting. Like 2019, I went elk hunting, and I shot an elk, and I don't think that makes me an elk hunter by any means. But I would consider myself when I come home and, you know, the the, the, the craft that I, I put in all year long for whitetails, you know, I would consider myself a deer hunter for this area. Um you know, if, if that makes sense. Uh, I, one thing I just thought of when you're talking about that, um, hunting specific deer throughout the year, how was late season flintlock? Were you able to capitalize on a doe? No, I was not. And I went out a total of four hours. So okay. Fair I enough. did not. I, no, but still, nonetheless, that wouldn't have meant that I was going to, that I would have had an opportunity, but I did not, I didn't put in the time that I needed to, to, to get that done. So yeah, I, I, uh, I missed my goal on that one. It's still, it's still lingering there, but, um, I decided, I decided I hunted, I, I hunted a, a lot in the fall and I was like better spent time with my girlfriend and family and doing some other things and catching up with work of like, you know, maybe I, maybe I shouldn't be, you know, putting as much time towards that. I guess I had to look at priorities a little bit and shift them. So that's where that came into play oh that's really hard i think one of the biggest things that i'm really trying to focus on this year and i've said this a couple times on the show like i i'm really want to make 2023 a year that i'm focusing on my priorities because um while i i'd love to to talk the talk in a big game of being the, the biggest baddest deer hunter i possibly can and hunting multiple states and stuff the fact of the matter is the phase of my life it's probably not the most realistic thing so i want to try to be realistic but really my priorities as i've said so so many times before i want them to be um god family my my work and and finances and, and kind of all that other you know stuff and then somewhere down the line is hunting and it's it's gosh it's such a big pill for me to swallow just because i, I want to do it i mean i i've never had a season in my life where the season closed and i was like man, thank God I was, I was getting tired or like, you know, having a long stretch where I was grinding it out and I was getting tired of it. Like, um, I wanted to do more off season scouting starting in January, but I got a, a new property to hunt in the extended late season this year. And I was just so excited. I, I shot a buck. I just wanted to go hunt this property, hunt doe with the flintlock because it, it just, the season's not over. I can, I still got tags. I still want to hunt. And it's, um, neither are wrong but i mean for for the goal of pursuing next year i'm i'm a couple of weeks behind again it's not a big deal it's just you know all that that priorities what are you trying to do so yeah, yeah no that's it's 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 important everyone's got different everyone's at different phases of their life too mm-hmm. and like you got to recognize that when you see somebody that's get you know that's has a lot of time or getting out there like someone like myself that doesn't have kids like that's a different scenario than than someone that has kids and mm-hmm. has a family like that's that's a whole different situation you got to understand that for your own personal things like to have a goal of like oh i'm gonna kill three bucks in three states be it you have a couple little kids at home and everything like that's not that's not you're gonna have to make sacrifices and probably not the right ones if uh if you have that you know what i mean and, and, and that I think ladies and gentlemen is why bo martonic is the smartest man in this conversation <laughs> <laughs> no, no i'm just kidding no no i just i i, I think it is important to, to recognize that so yeah and I'm, um, you know it's glad to hear that um you know you're in in, in the same sense you know 
have the same thoughts in that as as myself and I know so many people that do is is that balance of what you want versus versus what you need which is such a, a realistic thing but, yeah uh, I, I struggle with it and on the business side too like I I'm loving like figuring out business and my own thing and doing that and sometimes I can get obsessed with it and it, I got to like step back and be like, yeah, okay, maybe if I did this or that, like that would advance me in this way. But where is that hindering in other parts of my life? Like, you know, like I, that you got you to look at all of that when it's coming through and figuring out because we only have so much time in a day and so much time in a lifetime. It's like figuring out how you when you put something in there, you have to remove something else. And that's, that's, you know, I think that's going to take a lifetime for all of us to figure out that balance, and we may never ever figure it out exactly right, but it's important to keep trying. The stuff that you think about and you care about at 20 versus 25 and 30 and so on and so forth, I mean, it, it changes over time. And um, I've calmed my thinking slightly, but at the same time, I've got this mindset like I'd, I I'd really want to see this basement over here get refinished and have it lined up with shoulder mounts of big white-tailed deer that I killed over the years in Pennsylvania and maybe other states if I'm lucky. And at the end of the day, there's so many times I've thought about that. You know, it's, it's really when I... I look at my kids and I look at just, you know, the, the my job and career and the way things have changed the past uh, past so many years. Uh, I, I really have to sit back and think and like have a level head and think, does that really matter? At the end of the day, it, it doesn't. It's just a selfish desire. And uh, yeah. it's it's a battle we all face hunting and stuff. Anybody who has a, um, a hobby that they, they love so much. I mean, I, I, I seriously don't understand how people live without hunting. That's what that's my mindset. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you there. I don't understand how they don't either. Well, hey, man, this has been great. I really appreciate you coming on. Hey, anything you want to leave us with before, um, you know, uh, you know, drop your uh, drop your information for people to follow along with you if they aren't already and, and everything else? Yeah, I, I would just say the last words I want to leave people with is just, you know, when you're hearing, you know, me talking about, like, you know, analyzing all this data and doing all these things, like, that's what I like to do. It, if if that's not your cup of tea, like don't feel like you're not doing enough or whatever. Like that's, it's everybody has their different kind of what we are talking about at the end here. Everyone's got different goals and whatever it is, make sure it's fun for you. And yeah, whatever your hunting mm -hmm. style is like, make sure you're having fun with it. And if you're not figure out how to make it fun. Now there's not always the, sometimes seasons can be a grind. And, yeah. and if you want big goals, you're going to have to work for it. Now I'm not saying that, but it's, just have fun with it and and that's that's kind of what i'll leave it with on that front and and uh as far as where to find me uh east meets west hunt podcast anywhere you can find podcasts been doing a lot of video podcasts now on youtube which is just under my name bo martonic um all the social media channels either bo martonic or east meets west hunt you can find me in all of those places and uh i really appreciate the opportunity mitchell and bringing me on here talking so thank you so much me too. It's um, it, you know learning learning peop, uh, things about big woods hunting from people who have more experience than I do. You know I've I've got a, a, a significant chunk of my life, but the amount of time that you spend is so much different. I love people's um, different perspectives and learning. And, you know you talked about um, the you know my style of cameras and data, and my paralysis. Like you know just taking little bits from everybody and different styles. I think is what helps mold and craft you. 
um, and uh, that's what I love. So I, I appreciate you uh, you giving us a, a slice of that, Bo. Yeah, no, thank you. Again, I really do appreciate it.